Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am, as ever, your host, Kate Cavanaugh. I'm coming at you from the last day in August, and the goldenrod is out there turning, and the morning was quite cool. And this week has this week has really presented me with some personal hurdles. I've been in this period since launching the podcast of really expanding. I have had to get over myself a lot in order to put this podcast, this work out into the world. And it has been this massive expansion for me and forced me to get over some perfectionism and some self-doubt and even at times some self-loathing. And all of a sudden this week, Last couple of weeks, really, I've experienced this contraction, and I was reminded by my beautiful coach that just like the universe expands and contracts, and just like life expands into life in the summer and contracts in the winter, so do we experience both expansion and contraction. And that doesn't mean that we're not growing just because we've stumbled back on some old patterns and some old ways of experiencing life. Growth is still happening. And if anything, and I think Irene Lyon really summed this up in her episode, Sometimes it's when we've expanded and we have more room that all of the sudden these really, this really tough personal stuff comes up because we, we have room to heal it. And, and so I've been in this state and I thought I would share it with you all just in case it resonates with anyone and it makes you feel a little bit less alone this week because I know that, know that in this past week it was sort of a lonely contraction of just, wow, okay, I still, still have a long ways to go. And, and that's the point, right? We're all just on this journey of self-evolution. I want to talk a little bit about our guest today, Dr. Anthony Gustin, who has become a friend of mine over the last several years. And I actually found Anthony's work <laughs> many, many moons ago. I was looking for a just 100% grass-fed protein powder for that I would take with me to the butcher shop sometimes when I didn't have space to make a meal and I wanted something really convenient. One of his companies, Equip Foods, provides that. And this was sort of my inroads to Anthony's work. And I became a part of his email list, which he has this incredible email that goes out once a week where he just distills what he's been thinking about and who he's been talking to and products that have really interested him. him. And I started following his email newsletter. And then a couple of years ago, I was on the cover of the food section of the New York Times in this article called, I think it was called the the vegetarians who turned butchers. And there was a big photo of me and he talked about 
some of the things that I had said in that article in his newsletter and that he was going to visit Western Daughters when he was in Denver and he was going to be in Denver the next week. And I received this email. I was on his email list and I was like, oh, my gosh. Hi, that's me. And that was really how our journey together started. And we've been in touch a lot more since then. And Anthony was an instrumental part in building the Farm Finder on Groundwork Collective that we call Near Home and really wanting to establish this connection between consumers and farmers. And so our relationship really grew throughout that process. And him and his uh, beautiful fiance, Martha, I just respect them both immensely. And I am sort of in awe of the way that Anthony moves and transitions between different industries. We don't talk a lot about his businesses in this podcast. And and those of you that have listened for a while will know that I often like to take guests that have been on a lot of podcasts and do a very different interview with them than what I have heard them do. And so in the show notes, I'll link to a couple of interviews where Anthony talks more about his work with Perfect Keto, with Equip Foods, which I still really love their grass-fed protein for the record if you're looking for one, as well as some of their other products. And now with Zero Acre Farms, which is this cultured oil that is meant to be an alternative to seed oils, which we talk a a little bit about in this podcast. And so we kind of skip over his body of work and we just dive into the deep end of the pool, which you'll know as listeners of this podcast is kind of my favorite thing to do. But I wanted to make sure that I covered that I'm, I really think what Anthony is doing in a variety of different spaces is disrupting the status quo in a way that it really needs to be disrupted. And I think you'll hear some of those thoughts within the contents of this podcast and just just the way that this man thinks and the way that he sees problems in spaces as opportunities for growth and has really built that in all of these different businesses. And so I'll link to a couple of episodes that he's been on, and I really encourage you to just kind of dive into some of his work. But in here, we dive into something a little bit different around farming. And I walked away from this podcast with a lot to think about. And that's always a gift when that happens. And Anthony had some ideas that you'll hear in this episode, whether it's uh, corporations as organisms that maybe have evolved past humans. Uh, And that was something I was honestly so taken aback by, and it rang so deeply true in the moment. And it was so true that I found it difficult to hold. And I almost, I, I, I kind of fumbled my response to him in it in that it needs some time to sink in. And so you'll hear a little bit about that. We dive deep into the finances of farming. And I think that his very different background adds a scope to this conversation that is vital. We have to really talk about this whole gig where we as farmers are operating on one to 2% margins that don't account for labor. And I think that 
Anthony has some really interesting ideas and that it's a very important aspect of this to explore. And then we explore some more spiritual things and, and just sort of run the gamut. And I was really grateful for this conversation. I've been really grateful for Anthony's support of my work over the years. And he is incredibly supportive within the farming and food spaces of really helping to lift up people that are doing good work that may not have the same platform that he has. And so I just, I really respect him for that and for the depth at which we got to converse during this conversation. A couple of, a, about two months ago, him him and his, his fiance, Martha, were up in this region and we got to sort of get together and just sit around and share a meal, which Anthony cooked for us and it was incredible. And it's just really, it's, it's, he's a really special person. And I think sometimes you meet people that you just feel a certain kinship with and, and want to explore their ideas about how the world works. And those ideas really help you grow as a person. And, and this is what I found with this man. And so I can't wait for you to hear the contents of this episode. I think that it is, it is at once heartening and incredibly optimistic and also very there are aspects of it that are very challenging. I can't wait to hear what you think after you listen. If this show resonated with you, if you could just do me a huge favor and either share it with a friend, share it with a family member, share it with a farmer, or share it on your social media and drop me a little note and tell me tell me what you thought. This makes a really big difference. If you leave a rating and review on the podcast, that helps everybody find incredible conversations like these in the algorithm of Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. I'm always grateful and I always offer this. If you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts, send me a little snapshot with your real life address. I will send you a little piece of snail mail in return so that we can take this connection offline and into the real tangible world. It is always such a pleasure to be here with you. I know that we're not together here in this moment of time, but I do really do feel a sense of connection every time I record these intros, which are really meant just for you. Without further ado, Dr. Anthony Gustin. Hey. Hi. So <laughs> we've been planning this for, for quite a while, so it's really nice to just be in the room together, as it were. I wanted to start this off. I've been thinking a lot about your journey and that you had, you got the start in chiropractic and you've kind of crossed over from industries. And so you've gone from physical health to nutrition and then into this entrepreneurial space where you were looking to make foods to sort of introduce people to real food and then crossing over into farming. And I love that you have kind of had this path of seeing spaces where human health and disease is really prevalent and looking at an opportunity for a solution within that space. And so I thought we'd start this off by just asking you, what has driven some of these crossovers? Boredom, maybe? <laughs> no, I don't know. Curiosity. I, I think that looking back at basically restarting my entire life every three years, four years, 
Sometimes I think about that as like in terms of regret almost of seeing other people in fields having this comparison of compounding effects, which are really powerful. But in general, when I listen to myself and there's sort of like the, this hit I get of intuition or of just, I get compelled to do things or I have curiosities that I can't put down, try to follow that. And it sometimes leads to a chaotic life, but overall it, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to have gone the route that I have and I would have not predicted this 10 years ago. And I think just staying to the pulse of the intuition and, and trying to figure it out and I guess trying to make sense from it. And I think it, it allows me to have these sort of adjacent possible points of view of having so many different perspectives and actually becoming an expert in several different domains is it's helpful, but it's also can be kind of isolating because then you have very different thoughts than the majority of the people in the community. But I think that's what often can provide value. I think a lot of people in a community can get entrenched in one way of doing things. So yeah, I mean, it's been a wild ride so far and I, I don't know, I feel like I'm just getting started. Yeah. And I think we're catching you at this transition of sort of, I heard you say in an interview that you wanted to model life in a way after Wendell Berry, that you wanted to have a balance between intellectual pursuits and pursuits that were connecting you with the land or farming or this, this greater sense of the food system. Yeah. I think I'm overall, I would love to find a way of living that suits me and that I don't have to change all the time, but also sort of like feeling comfortable with the fact that what I'm interested in now versus 10, 15 years ago is not even close to the same thing. And being okay that if I do sort of go with the tide and it does look a lot different, that's fine. But at least trying to figure out, like, there's always this balance of what is life going to look like for the next two, three, four, five years versus also being okay that it could look tremendously different in 15 to 20 years. Uh, but yeah, I would love to just find something that works for me that I could just do indefinitely. I think it would be far easier on everybody else in my life and, and me included. So we'll, we'll see. I'm open to both perspectives. I don't know. I, I think that's interesting because a lot of what it has driven Josh and I throughout the years is this idea of boredom that we can't, we need a little bit more stimulation and we need more problem solving. And we get interested in these, these different arenas where we then go down this rabbit hole of learning a lot about them and then wanting to communicate and share that. And I think that there's, there's something to be said for being led by curiosity in this constant pursuit. I I think, yes, it's simpler to just settle down and do one thing. But I know that for myself, I find it fulfilling to sort of bounce around industries. Yeah, I think that, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but typically you want what what you don't have. And I think I look at a lot of people who have like this like lifelong mastery in a pursuit of something. And I get very envious of like, oh man, if I could only like stay at one thing, for 50 years and I would like be truly great. And I'm, I, I look at that as like a, a target that I'm, I'm unable to do, but I'm sure, and I know people actually who are the other way who wish they could have flexibility and chase after different curiosities, but like they're so focused on the one thing that they're doing. And so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just, you want what you, grass is always greener type of thing. Yeah. Have you read, have you read David Epstein's range talking about the difference between being a generalist and a specialist? No, but I know the framework. A bunch of people have recommended the book to me, so I should probably yeah, read it. I think that I think that that's something that is really I've taken heart for that I'm a generalist, that I have all these different interests, and that I have this opportunity to pull all these different threads together and to kind of synthesize information, which I think is something that you've done. Is you've you've 
traversed through these different industries and you've pulled threads from each of them to create this more cohesive idea that is working towards a greater purpose of connecting people back to human health, back to their environment, back to this idea of the natural state, to borrow the name of your podcast. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that the further I go, it's like there's this Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, where you learn things and you think you know a lot and then you actually learn and you realize you don't know anything. But as I'm starting to piece things together, it's just, it is actually far more simple the, the, I think the cause of the suffering that we have that's unnecessary right now, which like you said is like sort of this and people like Charles Eisenstein and others have popularized this of the separation of humans and nature. And, you know, I've come to this in my own way in different ways of, you know, the, in terms of health, looking at the natural state of an organism in its proper environment is health. Like health shouldn't be something that we have to achieve. It's not something that is anything but what we should be at all the time. And the changing of the environment is really what gets us. But I think where it gets kind of hairy and a little bit more com- complex is thinking about, okay, well, humans to live in their natural state now is frankly impossible. And there's, I think, this anarcho-primitivist sort of attack from the techno-utopias of you just want to live like cavemen and do all these things. And I don't agree with either side. And maybe that makes me the extreme outsider here where I don't think there's any going back. I agree. There's only going forward from where we're at, but where we're at is a very unsustainable way to live. I mean, you look at it in, in every measure of how we look at success is I think really weird. You know, it's numbers of things that have nothing to do with actual quality of life for humans or anything else living. And so while I think that the problem is very simple we're outside of our natural environment. The solution of what we do now moving forward is very confusing. And I think like it's almost like driving in the dark, extreme fog. You can only really see so far in the headlights. There is no clear path forward. And that's what kind of interests me about moving forward now and the work that I do of just, okay, before I was interested in nutrition and having these certain outcomes with health. So I'm gonna, let me experiment and try things out. Let me to keto and some other things, metabolic health and all this type of stuff. But now I think that's expanded. You know, first it was just like small scale nutrition levers I could pull to change my physical health. Then I got more into mental health and emotional health and spiritual health and all this type of stuff. And same sort of thing of, Oh, interesting. Like what's normal, what's not normal. Where am I at? How do I change my life to be able to not even have control, but just have more awareness around where I'm at and where I'm going. And now I think that's sort of like wrapped all of this up into a more comprehensive way to view all of these things in one, which is, again, us humans ripped out of our natural ecosystem, which is amongst all other living things. And so this is what's interesting to me about farming is, yes, it, it ties together health and sustainability in the future of sort of the ecosystem of the planet, which is interesting to me, but also emotional health and spiritual health and our place on the earth. And so I'm interested in this lifestyle for like, okay, let me do a ketogenic diet to see how how this works. Like, okay, let me live in this way with nature to see how that affects me as a human being. And so, you know, there's so many different ways why I'm interested in this type of stuff, but that's probably a primary one. 
I like what you said. I agree that there's no way that we're going to return to our natural state, that we are just so progress has taken us so far. And now we're into solving some of these problems of progress. And I think Paul King's North does a really good job of sort of illuminating what that means. But I think that there's this idea that there's at this point in history, there are people that are really romanticizing the future and this sort of techno-utopia of, or techno-green way of of carrying forward, and people that really romanticize the past and looking at hunter-gatherer and paleolithic examples of what it means to be a human, and that at this point in time, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And I know that for me, accessing farming was kind of at this space and, and, and intellectual pursuits at the same time of how can I combine these two things and begin to unpack what that point of connection for us as humans is that allows us to expand and, and reach a better state of health, both physically and biologically, but also spiritually and emotionally. Yeah, I think overall agriculture has gotten a, a bad rap for due reasons, but every sort of take on history is that, oh man, once we figured out agriculture and how to grow our own food, we screwed everything up because that led to civilization and civilization had all these things and money and possessions and wealth inequality and all these poor things, which I agree to a certain extent, but there's no context or nuance put on modern agriculture and maybe we need to find a new word for it stewarding or something like this, where we talk about, okay, we did do this and we've lived in a way that's destroyed the earth and the planet and the ecosystem we live in. But I think that there's an option to participate in agriculture now, where instead of taking, you are restoring. It's like a responsibility that you teach a child. Like if you, if you break something, try to fix it or replace it, make this place better than, than how you found it. And I think that we've gone very far away from what was given to us in a, in a very degraded way. And I think it's our responsibility to use our culture as a tool to remind ourselves where we came from, but also to restore things. And I don't think making more factories to extract more things is really the way forward. It's like, we, we need to clean up our own mess and we're like making more of a mess is not a way to do that in my mind. So I think it's for a lot of people that I talk to who have sort of taken the red pill and gone on this, sort of exploration of the past and how we got here. So many of the people, again, you have the techno utopias on the one side, but then on the other side, they don't, they just lump agriculture into a bucket of bad. Yes. And I think that is a really strange way to think about it is because just because we, at the end, we are getting food out of it. Doesn't mean it's the same thing as what we started with or what's, you know, even what's going on in your average Midwest farm commercial enterprise farm. I love that. And I've actually been thinking a lot about that lately because when I have these conversations on this podcast, it often comes back to this idea, you know, Wes Jackson's idea of agriculture is the 10,000 year problem. And that all of these, these problems were born out of us settling down and beginning to, to grow things around us and domestication and how that led to civilization and all of these different things and, and infinitely more complexity too. But I think that there is this aspect of when we come home and we come back to a, a new idea of agriculture, and I like the word stewardship. I think that's it's a really good representation of it. We're beginning to fix problems in a way that operates in reciprocity and not in more extraction. Yeah. I mean, that, that should be the goal, right? I mean, <laughs> this, this is the thing too. Like I, 
I don't think that they're problems to be solved. I think that they were emergent conditions that our species were faced with that happened not in an isolated thing. Like civilization and agriculture happened in different areas roughly at the same time of human history. And so I don't, like, I don't think it's just, oh, we took the wrong path. I think that things are always changing and life is always evolving and our circumstances are always evolving and we just need to continue doing that intentionally and trying to, to figure out, okay, we have all these options now. Now what do we do next with what we're given, what world we were born into? And I don't think that a lot of people think that way. I think it's just they try to trust where history has been and just kind of give up and float downstream. And yeah, the, the, yeah. the current of life is strong for sure, but you can paddle a little bit. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Put, put yeah. You can bit. absolutely paddle. Yeah. And I think that there is this, there's this desire to give up. You said something, I was listening to an interview that you did and you talked about food should not be something that we ever scaled. And I know that one of your big pushes is to get back to local, regional, seasonal food, that that, that that is a really simple rule to live by. And I think that this idea of scale, and I think a lot about it with Earl Butts in the, in the 70s, the secretary of ag, telling people it was time to get big or get out. And I think that this aspect of returning to agriculture, returning to stewardship, is an idea of maybe descaling. And so I think, you know, the question that's in here is what does it mean to come back to a smaller local regional food system to take something that has become this behemoth and to begin to scale back down? Yeah, there's this double sided problem that I don't see a lot of people talking about where on one end of it is this must feed everybody and population collapse will ruin civilization and we must keep this whole thing going. On the other side, it's, which I've belonged more to this side, but I, again, it's the same thing as the other problem with that you know, we are talking about before. Like I, I do not buy into either one of the, these extremes. The, and the other side is, well, we are not going to be able to feed as many people indefinitely. So we should just immediately cut the cord and sort of figure out how to live more quote unquote sustainably. And you look at how that, how, how that worked in Sri Lanka. I didn't, that wasn't very smooth. Was it? Tell me more. Switch, I'm not sure I'm familiar. So, so Sri Lanka, I think it was like earlier this year or last year switched everything immediately to organic farming. And so the whole country was predicated on feeding people based on artificial inputs. Say, so, okay, it's probably not a great thing to do indefinitely. Overnight, snapped their fingers and made organic farming the only thing that you can do. 20 plus million people are starving there now, as you could imagine. The entire food system is broken. And so there's this reality that we have this system that by and large is working to, you know, maybe, maybe not thrive. I don't think most people are thriving with their health, but people are surviving. And so we could do what Sri Lanka did and cause an immense immediate suffering that's real and people are here and born and people are alive right now. Or we could say, no, let's do that because later on less people who don't exist now will, you know, be spared of their suffering. And I don't know where to, I don't know where to go in this, but I think that the obvious solution, both of those are tough. It's like a trolley problem where one way you're screwing somebody and I totally get it, but that doesn't mean we can't think about expanding the things that actually work now while we're sort of caught in the middle of this tug of war. And that's just what, like, this is the argument I get with vegans all the time when I talk about 
anything regarding animal production for food is that they lump everything to a box of, of factory industrial farming, feedlot. It's like, you, you guys, there is a way to do this differently. Trust me. Like, I, I have seen it. It exists. And the argument, well, we can't feed everybody like that. We don't know what we can do with it or not. Like, let's, is it not worth some investigative worth and work to expanding this? Even if it was 10% of budget to, to R&D for farming, I think it's worth it. Like, we need to try to figure out some solution now concurrent of the current models. And so, again, I'm not of the mind of we need to end everything immediately and just go back to this sort of every community for themselves. I think that it, the world would turn into chaos very quickly. But I don't have an answer as far as like how to get off that track. But I think building a separate raft or a separate ship while we can, I think, is a worthwhile pursuit. Yes, and I think that there's this aspect of we have to try. We have to try different things. We have to experiment. And as somebody who's done a lot of, and both of us have done a lot of self-experimentation, we can devote, like you said, this little piece to experimenting and some other piece to finding more transitionary methods of doing things. Um, and this is, this is actually something that I think you're excellent at. Uh, I was listening to you talk about some of your businesses, Perfect Keto and Equip and Zero Acre Foods, and that these are really stepping stones to get people back to eating real food in the whole food matrix. And that it's such an interesting thing where you and I talk to these echo chambers within our podcast, but there's this whole greater populace that might be unfamiliar with these ideas. And so I think that there's this question of how do we bring people in to this conversation, which I think is something that you've done with these food startups and something that we can also do within agriculture. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's just a question of if you have a microphone or an audience or have anything to say, whose ears are you trying to get into and why? And I don't think that there's any wrong answers here. For example, I think that a good majority of how the world works right now is driven by elites trying to push an agenda. And you see this with things like World Economic Forum, political candidates, corporations, et cetera. But at the same time, there's an, an appreciative sort of opposite side of this, as it seems to be the theme of this podcast, is this dualism of like there's this tension between one side and the other. And I think that the answer really lies somewhere in between. But the populace is also very powerful. I mean, we live in an economic world and I think that when people use their dollars to vote for things, it's very important. And so do you make things ultra complex and super polished and present it to try to convince 10 of the world's elites? People have done that. Or do you try to speak to the masses who have zero interest in changing any of their behaviors? Uh, I, I certainly think that either one of those are, are really effective for a variety of reasons. And so I've tried to think about in some of like the larger products that projects that I've done, how do I get the people who are kind of on the edge of awareness, who are ready to start making decisions that are, are changing behavior? How do we get them convinced that there are more roads to them available than what they currently perceive? And I have yet to understand where that is with farming. I mean, this is like, I'm kind of new to this area. So I, I, my thing is always like dive in, become an expert in the thing and then start piecing together how I can help overall educate people about this type of thing. So for example, with Perfect Keto, it's a business that I have. We did a lot of content and sold products, all this type of stuff to help people on a ketogenic diet. I mean, that's what it looks like from the surface, right? But 
the plan had always been, okay, you, people are reaching for something because they have some inflammatory condition or a chronic disease or they want to lose weight. Basically, people were only doing ketogenic diet if and only if they wanted some change in their, their health. Nobody was just doing it because their friends were doing it. Like it, was, it was always motivated by some incentive to want to make a positive change in their life. No one wanted to make a negative change because it wasn't like a substance of people trying to distract themselves or whatever. They wanted some positive change. It's like, okay, while we have them, we have this small window of opportunity to also offer up to them all this other information on people can have a much healthier lifestyle. So I think ketogenic diet, while it can be great for people with metabolic dysfunction or for a variety of other things, that is just one tool in nutrition and nutrition is just one thing in physical health and physical health is just one thing in the overall health of the organism. And so we always had this perspective of like, okay, if people are coming here for nutrition stuff, like let's try to get in stress management concepts. Let's try to get in sleep importance, community importance, physical movement, things like that. And so, I mean, I think that when I sold the business last year was we had had almost 200 million page views and I'm, I'm okay to admit that in the majority of those pieces of content, there was propaganda of how to live a much healthier lifestyle than just reducing carbohydrates. But you have to understand where people are at from the zeitgeist of, of interest, motivation, readiness to change. And that's where I think it's the most important area to focus on because otherwise you have people so entrenched in their beliefs that what, who cares? Like who cares if I'm arguing with a vegan who's never going to change their mind about something like that? I don't, I don't care. I want positive change in the world with the way I, I think could, could be beneficial for everybody. And I want to help people who are ready to be helped. And so I, I'm just interested. And, and this, I sort of saw this on a very small scale in my clinic. There is this subset of people who, no matter what, did not give a shit about getting better. They wanted to come in for their Band-Aid and feel better. And they walked out and they were like, okay, just doing the same thing every single day. Then there was a subset of people who really wanted to do whatever that they could. And I could give them all this information and provide them with all this. And they were going to take it and make up their own sort of way to take control of their own health. Those are the people who change over the time. Those, and those are the people that I learn from because then they can give me feedback of like, Hey, I actually tried this. It didn't work. This worked for me. People who have agency and who want to move forward with that are the people that I want to at least interact with or impact or chat with. So I think that that's how things evolve and move forward. As we said before, is like the most important part of what we do now is evolve forward and not slip into some sort of zone of chaos. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's been kind of the, the goal is like, where are people who want to make a change and how do you present them a new door to walk through that maybe they haven't considered before? And zero acre is kind of a thing too. Where like as I'm not, I'm not as involved with the day to day now. I didn't, you know, it's, it's a very big company. I don't want to put that sort of stress in my life right now. I have a lot of other things going on. So we got this team built. We have this product. We're using fermentation to make an alternative to seed oils, like canola oil, safflower, sunflower, soybean, rapeseed, grapeseed, peanut, et cetera. And if you have any questions about, you know, why not real food, we can chat about that. But there's, a, I think, people who are making decisions currently, for example, to eliminate animal products, because they think that they are bad for the environment. And obviously we could unpack this into an entirely separate podcast episode. We could spend hours talking about that and that alone. But this is another zone where I've, I've seen this capacity of people who are like, okay, the intention of the person, 
There's all these people who are actually making choices, whether it's through social pressure or not, to make a shift and a behavior change for an outcome. And in this time, it's less about personal health and more about health of the planet, fear of climate change, whatever the reason, I don't really care. But people are demonstrating a wide-scale ability to make personal changes for an external reason. And so what I want to do is give them an option to say, like, okay, you want to make that change. Let me educate you on actually what, what foods are worse for the environment. And I think that from my research, that tends to be these enormous swaths of monocrop seeds that are grown for to be produced in this toxic oil for humans and animals and all this other stuff, which we could obviously talk about. But that's, again, I think in this period of time where we, we have a window to influence people's behavior and provide them a product or a solution or a business that can facilitate more doors to be open with them and the actions that they want to take. I love that. And I think that that's so important. I was thinking as you talked about this, um, in, in ecology, there's this idea of an edge zone. And that is really where life proliferates, is at the intersection of a field and a forest. And where that space is, is coming to meet, all of this life proliferates. And I think that when you're on that edge of, of finding agency and autonomy to make choices about your health, there is this lightning rod effect that all of the sudden it can precipitate all of these other changes and open all of these other doors just by going through this door and whatever gets you there. I want to, I don't want to contribute to poor practices for the environment, or I want to improve my health, or I want to lose weight, that these are all levers that you can then take as a company and begin to look at how you can use it to, to hook people into other systems. And I was thinking about this a lot with zero acres because I think that, okay, it's not a real food, but it's, it's really fulfilling a niche that is necessary at this time. And I heard you say that there were only, there were over 72 plus billion pounds of seed oils every year. And we're not going to overcome that by, and you had done some back of the napkin math using animal fats instead that there has to be this transition period. And then that transition period can then lead people back to maybe some other real food options. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing that we talked about before. There's, there's no going back to living as hunter-gatherers, hunting your own meat and all that type of stuff. And the same thing, the same thing our society exists on, like you said, 70 plus billion pounds of consumption in, in North America alone of these seed oils. The capacity if we used every single animal to be slaughtered i forget the exact math i think it was something like one like 150 million pounds or something like that is what we do now and like the it's only like 5x that maybe and so we're talking about like orders of magnitude difference here and yes i i you know i think about all this stuff as a spectrum yes eating your food locally and hunting it and growing yourself is the, is the best way towards that but the reality is that 99 percent of people don't even have an awareness that that's something that they can do and I think that, you know, as I'm thinking through these different stages of how I can, you know, I didn't like saying the word impact because I don't even care about the impact that I have. I think it's just like, I can't sit around and watch the world burning around me. And so I'm like, okay, and I should probably do something here. And I think where I can put out the most fires moving forward, you know, we talked about keto stuff. People were interested in that. How do we open more doors for them? Environmental things. And then there's a next one as I'm thinking about farming and how do we get people to care about farming and small farmers? I think that crypto and all these, these different things and COVID craziness 
and all the regulations that happen with that, mandates, et cetera. I don't care where you stand in that thing. I think there's a general consensus though that, you know, what the, like, why, why are my freedoms going away? And I think it's tied mostly to money. I think that a lot of the COVID stuff was fear and then corporations and big pharma and stuff got a hold of this and people who have power, who have want money and want more power and want more money. And I think that to be able to communicate kits to people who, you know, I was on a crypto podcast a couple of weeks ago, David Hoffman is a friend of mine who it was interesting to go on there and discuss. Cause I'm, I try not to do as many interviews right now cause I'm like, I'm in a phase of learning and I don't think I don't, I don't, I don't have as much cohesion of thought around this new thing of farming that as I did around keto six years ago, for example. And I was like, okay, this is actually a great opportunity because these are all these people who are at this point of not trusting large institutions and want personal sovereignty. So let's give them another door to walk through. And that is supporting local agriculture, living locally, et cetera. And the amount of feedback I got from that podcast was insane. And I think that that's just, again, like potentially that's where I'm going to play again. And next of like, okay, let's find this group of people who are ready for, to make actual changes. And you see people in the crypto community literally moving out of, this, of the USA, giving out their citizenship to live somewhere else because they believe in sovereignty so much, these people are ready to make a goddamn change. Like, I just think that it's a very fertile ground to be able to plant the seeds of like, hey, okay, people, this is what's important for your food system and what you're eating. And I think there's a lot of, you know, boogeyman scare tactics going around around how Klaus Schwab's going to make you eat bugs and all that type of stuff that I don't know if I believe in entirely as far as conspiracy theory, but yeah, I mean, might as well leverage it and, and keep pushing things forward and educate people about small farming in a way that actually incentivizes them. I think you brought up two really interesting things. And I I think that in a lot of ways, COVID, regardless of where you stand, opened up a lot of doors for people to become more invested in the idea of personal sovereignty and freedom. And when you intersect that with crypto and, and looking at the decentralization. And I think that there are a lot of similarities in those two spaces in what it means to decentralize a currency and what it means to decentralize a food system that has become so massive and has become primarily concerned with building profits. That's, I mean, that's just the, the main, as I come down to he, humans, health and ecosystem, as like how we got how we got here, the biggest problem I see we said before is the removal of our of ourselves from our natural environment. The biggest problem for moving forward is our corporations, in a sense. And I, the way I view it, it's been maybe assisted by some plant medicines, but is <laughs> I actually like visualize <laughs> corporations as this other entity, like this organism that's basically evolved from humans. And if you think about it, it sort of like makes sense from a point of view from what is, what is an organism in itself? Like humans can go in and out of a corporation, but that corporation has its own motives and incentives. If it's threatened at survival, it will attack and do things that it needs to do to protect its own survival. It will propagate for itself. It consumes. And if it doesn't consume things anymore, it perishes. And I think that we're like in an age where we think that we're the most evolved apex predator. And I think technologies and social structures have now evolved past humans as things that exist as organisms. We just don't see them as the same biological things like we are or where we came from. But I think when you actually look at it, they have evolved past us and are absolutely decimating us. 
I mean, we are, we are essentially like the Neanderthals getting wiped out, but we, we're too stupid to see it. And I think that the same thing happened when we wiped out the Neanderthals. Like they, they, couldn't, they couldn't compete. They didn't even know what was going on. They, like ants don't know when we're demolishing their ecosystems. And the same thing's happening with corporations to humans right now. And so I think that their corporations as an organism are the most dangerous and worst things that have evolved past humans that are destroying us right now. I'm having to sit with that. That was a really, I couldn't agree more. I've never thought about it in those terms. And, and I, I that is, it, it's this massive organism and who, uh, how do we even begin to approach that behemoth? Is it, I mean, is it this idea of creating more regional organisms that are never going to be that size, but are going to act either separate from the great organism that corporations are and have become, or many small to medium organisms that can compete on some level. I, this is a fascinating concept to me. Yeah, I've thought about it a lot. I think that Overall, there's no stopping the machine as it is right now until it just it blows up, which it will, I think. And I'm not t- like a doomsdayer. I don't think it's going to be cataclysmic end of the world type of things. But I do think that concept that I think we've talked about in the past about different things is like there, there's a carrying capa- capacity that you observe in agriculture to certain organisms. You can only put so much cattle on a land before it starts eating too much of the stuff and collapses. So if you're at 100 Cattle, but the land can only sustain 50. That's going to crash and then maybe go down to like 20 for a while until it restores again and gets back to a certain point. Well, I think that the food of corporations is energy to some degree. And I think it's the time scale it took us to get here and the time scale it will take to get the energy back again is so long that it will, it will look like a different phase for us. But for example, like we got here because we consumed, we went through like, Bronze Age, Iron Age, et cetera, cut down all the trees, burned all that for fuel, then went to fossil fuels, and now we're like mining lithium and all this type of stuff. And I think that once we get to a point where we're done extracting and there's no more food left, there's no more easy energy, things will collapse. But I don't think we'll be able to like, I don't think it's going to be an ever going rubber banding effect because it took us billions of years, hundreds of millions of years to get these stockpiles of energy and fuel and food for the corporations, essentially is how I think about it. And we're not ever going to get back to that point again. And I don't think it's going to be the end for humanity, but this is also why it's interesting for me to think about what regional things actually exist for humans. Because once the corporations fall apart, I mean, we even saw this in COVID, once they stuttered even a step, you couldn't buy normal things, like still go try to buy something that you're used to buying. And so doesn't, I don't think it's going to mean the end of humanity. I think it's going to be totally Mad Max, but we're going to have to figure out some ways to do things without corporations moving forward. And so obviously it's a crazy tangent, but thoughts that fill my head late at night. No, I actually really like this tangent because I've been thinking a lot about the carrying capacity of, of things that we do. And I think that there is this human idea that we can have growth in perpetuity, that, that there is this cascade of endless growth and there is no limit. And I think that we see in ecosystems that there is, that there's this carrying capacity. And I actually, I wrote this down in Paul King's North. He talked about uh, core writing breakdown of nations and saying, instead of growth serving life, life must now serve growth perverting the very purpose of existence. And I think that that right there encapsulates that idea of what this 
corporation organism has taken that, that it is life serving that growth in perpetuity. And that if we can get back to a different purpose of existence, if we can find, if we can find that, that thread that motivates and, and pulls us together and that edge of change that I think we're in, maybe this dynamic can begin to shift a little bit. Yeah, it sounds like I'm a crazy pessimist, but I'm actually quite optimistic about the future of things. I think it's it's going to be challenging. Like everything is always challenging. I think people we've lived in such a great time, and most people don't have to do any work to survive right now, and they're used to just using their iPhone and ordering their Uber Eats and doing whatever and not lifting a finger and not having any challenges. And I think that the most successful people now are the ones who self-impose hard things via whatever and constraints and limits and push through and have discipline and sub, you know, subjugate themselves to really hard things. And I think that we'll just have that not be a trace again in the future, which would be totally fine. And I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that comes out of it that's good. And I think that the best of humanity is yet to come. So I'm not, I don't think it's as doom and gloom as maybe it sounds to the people who are, who are listening still I haven't tuned out because my ramblings. <laughs> No, I, I, and, and I know you well enough to know that you're not a pessimist and I, I, you're actually one of the more optimistic people I know and, and that are really solution based. And I think watching you cross over into farming fascinates me. And, and you said a little bit earlier that you're not doing a lot of interviews because you haven't become an expert in this space, but I actually think that sometimes what spaces like farming needs, especially where we are, and I think we've, we've sort of built this groundwork of, of where we are at the relationship of humans and farming. Sometimes I think what it needs is somebody to come in that is not an expert and maybe has expertise and experience in other disciplines, in other industries, and can bring their lens into farming. And, you know, I think about this Another interview I was listening to you on, you talked about obfuscation in the supplement industry, that there were all these, when you went to make supplements, there were all these additives and it came back with added weight and, and they don't have to disclose those ingredients, that there are all these sort of ways that we obfuscate what's actually happening. And I think for somebody to come in that is maybe a little bit of a novice and to begin to pull back the curtain and ask some really pertinent questions or, or point at some things that they might see as not working as well as they could might be exactly what we need. I've started to talk about this from the sense of pork and chicken production. And I, people do not like it. People <laughs> well, do not like it. And th- this is where I can tell that the, yeah, there are some issues. I'm also, I understand I've, I've gone through this type of beginner who doesn't know anything to kind of mediocre guy who knows some stuff enough times where I know where I'm at in the spectrum. And I'm still grasping at, I understand fundamental things, but I don't think that the synthesis and the dot connecting is like fully where I want to be yet to be able to like throw myself out there. But I'm starting to test some ideas and put it out there. And I think that the one of them is just like, I'm starting to call out people who say basically anything. Like I, I just don't think that there's anything that can be called regenerative pork or regenerative chicken commercially available period. I think that maybe on a small scale, family or community. Sure. I think that there's plenty of different ways regionally and locally this could happen. But as far as like you going to a store, you going to an e-com company and buying a quote unquote regenerative pork or chicken, I think it's bullshit. If you actually just look at from first principles, what this is supposed to mean, 
And is, does this fit the bill? Yes or no? And obviously there's a lot of difference in how we're defining what regenerative actually is or not. But if you are extracting and degenerating land elsewhere to regenerate your land, net, net, we need to have a conversation about that. And I posted this on Twitter actually a couple weeks ago. Oh, people were pissed. And I'm yeah, saying you like, said, let's, I have the tweet here. You said, I am not convinced there is a way to raise commercially available pigs or chickens regeneratively as of August, 2022. Yeah. I think that that lands in again, maybe I'm wrong and someone will educate me and that's great. But I, I put this stuff out here. Same thing I put out of, of like, besides fruit trees, show me a way to regeneratively grow plants, vegetables, primarily without external inputs. And I just keep asking the question and maybe I'm not asking the right forums, but I don't have any answers. It's met with silence. And the same thing with this. There were some people who were in the comments in that Twitter thread. I got a lot of DMs from people who are really upset that I was saying this type of stuff. Uh, but I don't know what to say. Like, if we want to move forward, we need, to, we need to look at the parts that aren't working. So we can move forward. I generally believe whenever you're getting a more heightened response from people, maybe you've hit on a little bit of a tender spot that people don't want to look at. And I think that I, I pulled that quote from you because I think that this is really important and I'm going to relate it back to something that, that is probably also going to piss people off, which is this idea that an electric car is better in some way where there's this whole other industry to fuel that electric car, which is lithium, the mining of lithium and this sort of extractive way of, of creating these batteries. And then the electricity with which you charge that car that is coming from predominantly coal and natural gas powered facilities. And so I think that it's really easy to look at, in this case, a pig or a chicken on pasture and you're rotating it and you're doing everything right, but it requires this exogenous input, which is feed. And to your point, can we grow that in a way that is regenerative and and i i we have had a very similar experience of looking at these animals and saying is this something that makes sense because as monogastric animals they require massive amounts of exogenous inputs and i believe are very prone to becoming <laughs> lazy because of those inputs yeah i and again let me reiterate I said commercially available. So all of the geeks come out and go, well, I know this guy in upstate New Hampshire who is actually doing this thing with his, he has fruit trees and then he gets milk from his pit, it's from his cows and he's feeding it to his pigs. And then great. I think that's amazing. And I love that people do that. I have this, this one guy I know in Kansas is like, he grew, he has this, field that you know of 20 acres that has grains in it that grains drop and the chickens eat that and the chickens actually don't even eat any feed that's awesome and i love that example and we should be collecting more of those as ways to move forward but again as a, com as a consumer to go out and buy commercially available regenerative monogastrics i just don't think it's possible yet and i would love to figure out a solution but i think people should know that because i think they're being hoodwinked by a bunch of Brands that are saying that things are away when they are not away. It makes consumers who are trying, you know, the worst thing I think can happen, like I was saying before around sort of people are reaching out for some solution and you give them it as a brand and a company to lead them through a different door to make a certain choice. If you know that it's not the case, but you're feeding them a lie, they grab onto this thing that disintegrates and then they don't trust anybody ever again. 
And if you, us as an industry, like people who care about farming and food production are feeding people literal lies, people aren't going to forget that. And so I think it's very important that we are honest with what we're doing here and give people the accurate information. Because it, it's, not, it's not like people who are saying this are confused. And there's a, I, it, it's funny, I see like a lot of infighting now in the poultry space. I'm not going to name names, but there's specifically three different brands that I know are like in it and hate each other and are saying stuff to, to each other and about each other, but they're all guilty. And so it's just funny to me. So I, I try to be the outsider being like, you guys are all lying to some degree, but yeah, I mean, that's some of the naive perspective that I'm shining on this space is just like, especially, I mean, this is why I started farming with pigs and chickens is to, cause this is what interests me the most. There are plenty of examples of ruminant regenerative systems that are great. I'm not going to find some new way to raise a ruminant animal that's better. But as an outsider who's like, okay, why don't we try this thing with pigs or chickens? Or why don't we try this feed? Why don't we like, what would actually happen if this happened? I think that's an interesting thing to look at. And so as I've been doing that, that's the, like, I don't see any solutions that, are, that can lead to commercially available meat, especially in the, in the volume that's being produced. And so I don't have an answer to what that looks like. Does that mean that we don't eat these animals anymore? Does it mean that we boycott pork and chicken? Like, I, I still think that they serve proper functions in an ecosystem, even if they are being fed feed. But where is that feed coming from? And how, are you, like, how are you sleeping at night knowing where it's coming from? I don't know. I don't have a, a solution for that. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just an interesting, curious thing. Again, I don't have any dots connected, but I have some, some early observations. And I like that. And I like that, that you're coming in here and you're kind of disrupting the idea and, and putting forth some of these questions. And then you're making your own hypotheses and going out at Joyfield Farm and playing with some of these levers of, and I know that you, you were doing some experimentation with pigs and looking at the difference between giving them corn and soy and corn and soy free feed and, and how that is going to eventually affect the outcome of that carcass and then to be able to use nutrient density or an omega-3 to omega-6 ratio as a lever to talk about different ways of doing this or as a way to add value for the farmer that that can then be utilized to charge a different price point for that meat. Yeah, this is where Again, I said I have this hypothesis to get more people into farming will be this kind of sovereignty, don't trust big institutions or corporations thing. But, man, there's so many problems in this space that who knows what the other end of this experiment will look like for me. And I think that the commodification of prices of food is so twisted that I think that the same thing with when people were doing keto – and wanted to change their health. And there's still a lot of people who realize that our food is becoming less and less nutritious by the year. And so if you can start quantifying actual amounts of nutrition in food and, and show a farmer, hey, this input, I have the hypothesis and I want to test it, so this is what I'm doing. If you feed an animal a more species-appropriate diet on this spectrum, they'll have more and more nutrients. And Van Vliet, this savage, you had him on your podcast, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah is doing a lot of this great work and I'm working with him to try to figure out how do we do this at scale and try to get map out what this looks like. I, Cause I'm under the impression that people, and I'm one of these people, if I, if I see if it's quantifiably more nutritious, I will pay more money for that food. Yes. And a lot of times that it's actually the input costs. And this is why I'm curious of doing it myself. I don't know what you guys are at, but our corn free, soy free feed here is cheaper than our corn and soy feed. Mm-hmm. 
So is ours. And we're in very different places. Which is wild. And so if you can get something that's cheaper for, for an actual input cost, but charge more money at the outset because it's a more nutritious food, you can prove that. Well, now you start changing the dynamics of who can farm and actually get farmers a living wage and sort of solve a lot of these things where you get consumers better food. You actually solve marketing problems. You get the animals eating more species appropriate stuff. The price of the product gets more appropriately priced and you can ch- charge different things to the commodity beef because you, you can actually quantify that you're different. I think it's a lot of word soup right now of, oh, on these rolling green pastures and blah, 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 blah. And look at our farm photo of the family by the, the whatever. And it's like, that's great. But people generally don't care about that stuff anymore. As much as I, I would love them to, and I want people to have a connection with their farmer and their food and to be able to respect that, most people don't care. They care about what's in it for them. And so you have to provide that for them and be realistic about that you're actually giving these people something that they're getting separate from the other stuff. This is something I'm really interested to get your take on as an outsider, because I think that the margins in farming are not conducive to this becoming a space that can actually thrive. And, you know, the more farmers and ranchers I've talked to over the last decade, they're usually sitting at between a one and 2% margin, if that. And that often is not enough to carry them. And we talk so much about sustainability within an environmental space or an animal welfare space, but we're not talking about the financial sustainability of small regenerative, whatever you want to call it, farming as a whole at these at these margins. And I think adding value and using these levers, and you talk about both nutrient density as lever, but also flavor as a lever to gain more investment on the consumer side for w- being willing to pay more for something that costs more to raise. Margins and farming are the only thing that I've seen now, especially as like getting into business, where there are essentially no exceptions for anybody to do something different than the corporations. So for example, if you're like this small startup kind of supplement company online, which is like what my first foray into online business was, there's obviously the GNCs of the world selling these shitty $10 supplements. You can, like the first product that I launched, when we launched a beef protein, it was seven years ago at this point. And I charged $69 for it and people bought it. I bought it. And that's how I found you. Oh, awesome. I didn't know that. The thing with farming though, so I'm, you know, have these layers and I'm starting to do some stuff and I was looking at the market. I'm like, now that I know the input cost of this, why aren't you guys charging more? Like there's just an understanding of how a business works. And it's why I think that people who are versed in business don't go into industries as farming is because there's, there's no incentive for them to do so. Cause you look at the, you look at sort of like how a business flows you have money that comes in and then there's all these things that eat up that revenue that you take. So if you pay $10 for something, then you have to account for all these other things before you have profit at the end of the day. And if you have a 1% profit, no one like the, the margins of error to go bankrupt are so slim. I think anything under 10% net margin is crazy. It's stress. Like it is ultra stressful. If one bad month happens for whatever reason, and you don't have tons of stockpile of cash, you're screwed. And so when you're looking at it, so like how a business needs to make sense, you need to like on the product as far as if something costs $10, and this is especially true if you're going into retail, you need to have at least 70% product margin, meaning the product only costs you $3 to make. And I'm going out to the farmers of like, they're getting product margin of like 10%. 
And then that has to go into like, and then you look at packaging and production and labor costs and stuff like just general admin things and, and it's like operating expenses of the business. And like to understand how, how businesses should work as an economic engine, I don't like, I just think it, that farmers, hopefully everyone gets together and we're like, hey, we're like, fuck these corporations. We're going to price things appropriately so we can make money so we can live and then tell a story around it and do that. But yeah, it's, it's the only industry I've seen. I've looked into all these other industries. So I was, I was thinking about starting all these different stuff over the last 10 years and skincare, every single kind of food product, every, basically everything besides meat. There's, there are premium brands that are selling for way more that have appropriate margins to actually run a business compared to corporations, which can afford the one or 2% because they're publicly traded corporations. They have access to liquidity. It's like a very different thing. And so I, I don't get it. I don't get why that's the case but it needs to change. And we need to have people getting used to being like, oh, that's fine. You can go to a whatever and get your steak for $10, which we need affordable options. That's great. Corporations serve a purpose in that sense. But we also need people who are wealthy going out and buying the $70 steak because otherwise there's no spectrum and everybody gets squished at the bottom. And if there's a spectrum and we start normalizing things, then farmers can make money and we can actually have a food production system that makes sense. And if we don't, I mean... So I talked to Will Harris a couple of weeks ago, and by the time that this podcast is out, that one will be too. And he talked about operating a $25 million business with White Oak Pastures that does maybe $200,000 of profit at the end of the day. And he likened to it to driving 200 miles per hour in a teeny tiny car on a six foot wide road. If a deer jumps in the, in front of that car, I, the whole thing goes up in smoke and that nobody will, nobody will touch that business from an investment standpoint because it's, it's just so precarious. And I know that Josh and I have experienced this in the running of Western daughters too. And I think that it's twofold, right? That they're, there are some aspects around farming and how we raise meat and really looking at that, that ecosystem of business within farming. But there is this consumer facing side too, where consumer behavior has to begin to shift from spending right now. It sits about seven to 11% of income that is spent on food to something much greater than that. And that there has to be a value proposition on the consumer side of things to get that engagement. I agree. And I think that the more people just start doing it, the more normal it's going to become. And with everything else, this is just another, it's going to be another narrative that the vegans use of, Oh, this is meat is such an elitist thing, blah, 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 blah. I don't give a shit. And this is how we got organic, whatever, produce into every single store is because rich people bought it, created a demand, went down chain, and now it's more widely available. It's the same thing. Like you said, the thing about the electric cars, same thing Elon's doing, whether you agree with electric cars or not, it's like you start with the crazy roadster then you go to the S and then now you have a, a more reasonably priced thing. If people want to get into that, if they want to support it or not, I don't care. But that's how, that's how economic availability of stuff works. And that's how we need to treat this. Like, Look in history at anything that's ever been available initially that was hard to, to supply. Same thing has always happened. And so to do that again here, we need to do the same thing. Create a premium thing with incentive, have rich people buy it, increase the supply, bring the prices down, everybody can have it, period. It's like very simple. Do you think that there's a gap in farmers reaching that market 
through marketing efforts, through the way that, that they're talking about food, that they're, because I see and have for the last 10 years, that it's just difficult to, to reach that market and to talk about it in a way that buys some engagement and some, some investment. Yeah. I mean, I think that farmers have to be resourceful and entrepreneurial given the nature of the job and they're really good at it. And I think you have some of the old guard who get really good at it, like Joel Salatin, Will Harris, and some of these people who have done a remarkable, remarkable job. And I think that as we transition to the next generation of people who are native initially to online marketing and online communication, I think that will translate. And I think that farmers will get better as they get younger people more interested in it. And these skill sets start becoming part of on-farm skills, which I think they need to be. And I think that in general, farms need to also think about other offerings besides just meat products, for example, like agro-tourism, farm stays, things like that. I know some farms that are crushing with, they put a tent or a cabin or whatever on their farm, and that's majority of their revenue now, which is great. That's, like that, you inspired like, we, us. We, we that's need, what we're doing. Yeah. And I think that's a phenomenal thing to augment income, to be able to pay for the things that you want to do and make up for margin elsewhere. Again, if, like... Perfect Keto, we had some products that were incredibly high in margin, some that, some that weren't. And we had the higher margin ones and charged more for them so that the business evened out. And it, this is all to say, like, anybody can learn this stuff. If, if a you know, simple guy like myself can learn all this, like, I didn't go to business school. I had to learn all this stuff just by doing it. Okay, how do you make this thing survive? The, the problem is that the labor and the, the business management are intertwined so tightly in a farm. And because there's so much generally to do, and a farmer's burdened by actual labor, they can't sit and be like, okay, what are, what are my financials look like? I've asked so many farmers, hey, what's your margin on this? Like, what are you making per month? What are you spending per month? Like, I, I actually don't know of anyone besides Will who has a good grasp on it, which is crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. Because I mean, at the end of the day, as much as I don't think it should be this way, they are, farms are businesses. And they are economic engines, and that's the only way they could, they could survive current in this current dynamic. Again, that's not my preferred way of them existing, but that's the reality and truth of it. And so we need, we need to stop wishing it weren't a certain way and realize that it is reality and adjust accordingly in that reality to move things forward. I think that this is a really important conversation to have because this is the state of what it means to farm and contained within that from your perspective. And again, I like asking you this because you don't have that experience. You mentioned something that labor is often what eats up that time to sort of build a, a more watertight business flow and to actually look at what's going in, what's, what's coming in and what's going out. But as Josh and I have experienced and just sort of dipping our toes in this water, and I'm curious what your experience has been at the farm, the labor portion of it is astronomical and oftentimes not even accounted for within, uh, as people look at profit and loss, we know a lot of farmers that don't even account for their own labor. Yeah. I mean, look at any YouTube video of like, Profit X amount per hog. And like, this is sort of the stuff that gets fed to me now because all the stuff that I look at, but you know, made this much on broilers this season and it doesn't count for any labor. Yeah. If you had to pay somebody to do that, this would be a terrible operation, but you don't. Cause like you're getting the thing from the labor, which is totally fine. I understand that. But if you, for example, if you sell a business and you're not taking a salary, let's say the, the business is valued on like a multiple of profit. So you make a hundred thousand dollars in profit. Somebody wants to buy that for $500,000. But 
if you should have been taking a hundred thousand dollar salary for yourself, but you weren't, the buying party will go, oh, this is actually not a profitable business. I do not want to buy this thing. And so that needs to be accounted in the whole thing. And as I've been thinking through farm activities, you know, I'm in a fortune position where I can have it eat through some cash and not be profitable for a while and I'm fine. But I have this like crazy spreadsheet of that I've worked with several farm hands and I'm like, okay, here's all the theoretical farm activities we could do. Here's the startup cost. Here's the income from them. Here's profit. Here's what I think I could sell things for. Because again, I think I'm a little aggressive with pricing. And it's like, for example, I sold our pigs, which I think are going to be phenomenal compared to the industry average. But I sold them in like four minutes because I've built up trust with people about talking about these issues where I can, I can do that. Obviously, not the case for a lot of farmers. But again, if a simple man like myself can do it, anybody can do it. So have this spreadsheet. And then my entire thinking is, what is the combination of these specific farm activities that we could do with the context of this farm to get to a point where we have a full-time person making an income on this farm? And whether that's me not saying like, I'm trying to use my farm as an income generator for myself or someone else, I think that like, this is a key part of the management of things that people don't incorporate, which is why they're okay with these tiny margins, which is insane. And I think that this is how I would think about a business. If I'm like launching a new business, I think like, okay, I would need to hire somebody to run this. I would need to hire people to do these things. And that's a very different thing than being like in the weeds operator versus owning the thing. And again, I don't wish it to be that way. I want farmers to be plugged into things and want them to be intimately involved and not have to worry about finances. But the reality is, if it is a business, we need to be thinking about this stuff. And so that's how I've at least thought about, okay, let's, piece together these different activities to come up with this income, which will pay for this person at this salary in this time, as fast as time period as possible. And it might, and I think to your point, it might require looking at some other pursuits that it might require looking at events or on-farm stays or in agritourism and whatever that is in order to build a financial ecosystem that is going to support that at least for now. It's for sure the most profitable thing to be modeled out in a business thing. Cause it's like, it's something that especially learning for me, the variability on when you buy something versus like the, the, the cash flow yeah. and the cash conversion <laughs> cycle of like you buy livestock and feed and then you don't get that until much later. This is why what I did is I pre-sold all my pigs. And so I got all the money from people immediately so I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to play that game. How can I do this? Can I ask people if they want to buy a share in a pig now and sell them by a fourth instead of having to sell cuts later on? Well, I don't know. Let's try it out. And it worked. So there's things like that that people can think about. Like if you have to buy all this stuff, but you don't get your money until way later on when you sell through frozen cuts out of your freezer, that's not good for a business either. Like you need to have cash moving around to be able to do things inside the business. And this is why events as well, like, I can maybe harvest pigs two times a year here. I can have events any weekend I want. And again, it's just a, farm services have changed a lot over the last several hundred years. And they're going to change a lot again over the next couple hundred years. And I think that we're sort of on the verge of, I think it's great that there's a market for this stuff because it means that people in the city who have money who are not connected to it want to give you their money to experience what you're doing, which is a great indication that we're moving in the right direction from a market perspective. And I think through those experiences, they form a connection to their food system that incentivizes them to spend 
more money on their food because they've been there and they've seen it and they have a little bit more understanding of what it takes, a little bit more curiosity about that system. And when you add in perhaps this idea of data on nutrient density, a la Stefan Van Vliet, or even just the idea that these products are so much more rich in flavor, then all of a sudden people are spending more money on food. And I think you're beginning to, to find a little bit more balance in the reciprocity of farmer and consumer. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, there's few things in life that short circuit people's weird whitewash view of reality of how things actually are. For example, if somebody's going through like a death of a loved one, for example, there's like these small windows of time where you just go, oh shit, like nothing else matters, but to like be loving with the people around you. And when you're on a farm and they're connected in an authentic way, same thing matters. Same thing happens with like, oh, like going out to eat or doing these things. I'm doing like, oh, bullshit. Like what matters is actually like knowing where my food comes from. Like there's just this irreversible human connection to where we come from that I've seen with hundreds of people, thousands of people probably of like, oh, this is a universal experience that people have. And it, I think like we're, our reality, especially people who live in cities, is so askew to what's, what's actually, like, just because it's common doesn't mean that it's normal. And we live in a world where all this stuff is common doesn't mean it's normal. And what's normal is having connection to your food system. And then when people experience that, they, like, the, the veil of reality sort of fades away temporarily. <laughs> and the more that that happens, the better things become for the individual, in my mind. Yes. Absolutely. I love that. The, the more that that happens, the more the veil of reality fades away completely. I just, I think that we have been so intimately connected to our food throughout all of human evolution for the last, I don't know, 200,000, 1.8 million, however you want to call it years. And I think that there is a void in us as humans that we are seeking to fill. And I think that that connection not necessarily to be a farmer, but to go and to connect with that space begins to provide something, some sense of purpose, some sense of connection just for our human organism. Yeah, but it's tough. I mean, there is certain gravity to reality, the way we live it. And how do you extract yourself from that and not feel like you're going crazy? That's at least what I'm dealing with right now. Like, how do you transition from from this way to the other way? And the, the way I sort of talk to people about it who ask me, how do you like living out this farm? And what's this kind of like back and forth between Austin like, and what's going on? And I think it's very similar to I think anybody who's changed their diet dramatically from a standard American diet to a like health, healthy, real foods. diet. I don't care if it's plant-based or carnivore. It doesn't really matter. There's all of this stuff that you have to like let go of and sort of almost transform into being a different person, different vocabulary, different ways to shop, different ways to cook, different friends different food availability, different tastes. And there's a while where you go through this transition where you're not eating the food as much, but you maybe have like this box of snacks or like you're at a party with your coworkers and you're like, you like, you eat the cake because it's there or whatever, but you're not eating as much of that stuff. And then there's a point where you look back and you just think, well, this isn't food. I can't believe that I thought this cake was food and then I used to eat it. And your paradigm has gone through this metamorphosis and now you are the butterfly. And it's, it's a very different reality. And the, it's challenging. A lot of people have to change their friends that like end relationships because one person's not on board and 
life does change dramatically, but it's this long progressive thing that when you look back has changed and has been a binary switch. And I think that the same thing of living in a modern American city, especially to living in a more rural life connected to land is like that example with nutrition times a thousand. (laughs) At least this is my experience of it. I don't know if you've gone through something similar, which we can talk about when I interview you, but that's, it's, um, it's very interesting to sort of see things like being caught in the, like, uh, Oh, I'll eat the cake cause it's here. Mm-hmm. But knowing like, ah, I probably shouldn't, doesn't make me feel that good, but it's there. And like knowing that I'm in that phase with lifestyles is so interesting to observe, but it's also uncomfortable because I know like where I want to go, but I'm not there yet, but I know it's going to happen eventually. And it's just, it, it's just a really bizarre experience to like have something that's so socially normal, which junk food, fast food, all this bullshit, socially normal. And then you start eat break those chains and you're like a sovereign individual with how you think about food consumption. And then going from living in a city where all your friends and everyone, you know, lives and everything you do, everything, everything you depend on is there to now, not just food, but everything is severed and you have to reestablish everything has been a very curious journey. At least that's how I'm experiencing it. This was, it's funny because this was actually my next question and I had pulled this quote, you know, you and I share books back and forth a lot. And you gave me Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist by Paul Kings North. And I had this quote and he says, getting your hands dirty, root yourself in something, some practical work, some place, some way of doing, pick up your scythe or your equivalent and get out there and do physical work in clean air surrounded by things you cannot control. Get away from your laptop and throw away your smartphone if you have one. Ground yourself in things and places. Learn or practice human scale convivial skills. Only by doing that, rather than just talking about it, do you learn what is real and what's not and what makes sense and what is so much hot air. Yeah, that, you know, I resonate with that. Obviously, I don't have scythe yet, so maybe I'm an imposter and I'll get there. And that's sort of like a uh, initiation piece that I will someday come to know. But yeah, it's, you have to do the things for sure and you have to walk the path and it's, it's messy. And I don't know if you feel like you've looked back and you're now, that cake isn't food sort of mentality. And like, I can't believe that I used to live that way. But I'm not there yet. And it's, uh, I'm more that direction than not, I think. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting transition of lifestyle that I think in mass, ever, the people who have, that I know who've like, quote unquote, made it and you're like financially free, time free, can do whatever work they want from wherever they want, have escaped the shackles of modern reality, so to speak. They, and I know a lot of these people, so many of them want like their dream is like, okay, let's get a piece of land and like live on it with a bunch of other people that we all like. And it's like, again, it feels like this emergent thing that people know that they belong onto in, into land and doing land and all this type of stuff. I think that the hard part about it is that when people are faced with the work that it requires, like they've optimized their life to be free of any sort of struggle or uncomfortable work. And they've worked hard to get to that point. And so to think about, now choosing to do that again is kind of like, oh, well, I'm going backwards. And that's kind of been an interesting thing where like people know that they want the thing of living on land and being more connected and having smaller communities and all that type of stuff. But think it's sort of like this, there's almost like this cognitive dis- dissonance that it's a, it's a bad backwards thing. And so then they want like 
the farmhand to do everything for them. They want a property manager. They want, they want to actually be removed from the life that they know, they can like intuitively sense they need and want, but don't want anything to actually do with it, which is kind of an interesting thing to, to see. I think that that's fascinating because I think one of the things that I enjoy is that the farm creates this aspect of struggle, that it is too hot, that it's too cold, that it brings up things emotionally, spiritually, that are incredibly difficult to hold. And it asks you to rise to those challenges. And it also takes of, of time, but it gives in, in equal measure. And whew, while you were talking, I was thinking about there's this idea that among hunter and gatherer communities that there was actually a fair amount of free time, of downtime, that it wasn't all just in pursuit of food. And I think that as humans, we naturally want to get back to that natural state of having this aspect of free time and downtime. And I really believe that the only way that that can happen within a new agricultural paradigm is through doing this in deep connection with community that we were not meant to farm as, for example, two people and to just have two people to manage that. And if we can actually build these communities that we're dreaming of building, but it it requires of us to give up some of that independence and personal sovereignty, you know, within just the dyad of our relationship or our family unit and to to welcome in others in a way that many of us don't actually want to do, which is, again, this call to get more uncomfortable in this process. And I think getting back to the land, whatever you want to call it, this sort of homecoming, it breaks so much of what you have been conditioned to want and think and believe. Yeah, I think people are on their way, though. It's I had this interesting thought that like our, my parents' generation were of the sense of like every every leisure thing should be amazingly comfortable whether it's like the lazy boy chair or even the hot tub and now we're transitioning to like everyone my age doesn't want a hot tub hot tubs are gross people want sauna sauna and they want all the things that are like hard and uncomfortable but they want to choose when those things are the case and so thinking about being on land where it's like it's not up to you to choose when you're struggling is something I think people like they'll get there. I think I, I have a, I struggled recently this weekend. I had a struggle. I'll tell you about a story. Um, so I was loading some of my pigs up to take it to a friend's property and had this trailer and I backed it up perfectly in this gate. I got everything around it. It's an amazing thing. Didn't feed the pigs for a day. So they'd be really hungry. So that way I could get them in the trailer, put the food in there. All but one went up into the trailer. It was like a foot off the ground and they were just hopped up there. So one was just like, I'm not doing it. I'm not getting in the back of this trailer. And I couldn't tell if he didn't want to jump up. So I was like, okay, what if I make a ramp and put some food in the ramp and get it in there? And it's hot in Texas still. It's like 100 degrees, basically. Sweating profusely. I go grab this pallet that was on the ground, I don't know, 20 yards away, and bring it over. And just hoisting it up and like holding in. And it was like resting on my thighs. And I throw it down. And then after I throw it down, I look, I look down and there's 10,000 fire ants oh, no. where the pallet was climbing into my shorts all over my thigh. Like I have like my thigh is like a, a absolute, I can show you a photo of this mess. 
So instinctively, this is, I was in extreme pain, and I have had some experiences. Like, if one fire of these Texas fire ants bite me, I get a welt the size of like a quarter. I've already had a thousand bites at this point. Rip my shorts off, step out of my shoes because I'm like, I, there's literally ten thousand all over my shorts. I already had my shirt off, so now I'm like entirely naked. The pig, while I was doing this, climbed under the trailer and is now like running in circles around my property. <laughs> There, there, there's also at this point contractors who are like buildings and buildings so we can do some of the event stuff that i talked about to make it a, a fully functioning modern farm and so i'm now naked sweating profusely ant bites all over the place leapt over this fence started chasing this pig around my property finally got it back in the fence was finally climbing up this this thing and i basically had to like again still naked wrestle this pig <laughs> into the back of the floor Oh man, it was, um, so uh, yeah, I did not choose for that struggle to be there at that time, but it led to itself. <laughs> it presented itself. That sounds itself. like a quintessential farming struggle. Uh, oh, yeah. it, what did you take away from it? That Texas sucks sometimes. There was no, there was no controlling that animal. Like there's, you, you gotta go with it. And I think if I were to do it again, I would have just let that pig tire itself out, tucker itself out. I would have gone inside, got some new shorts, taken a drink of water, and gone back, gone back out because nothing would have been different at that point. There's no, there's no change in the mind of that pig. I think you just related a story that is so universal within the farming space of just one thing going wrong and cascading into the next thing going wrong in the most frustrating and, and all of the elements combining to create this horrible situation, this incredibly frustrating experience. And one of the biggest takeaways that I've gotten from farming is patience, that it requires a level of patience that we do not have in our modern society. Yeah. It is funny that when this was happening, I knew it would be something that I would laugh about later, but I was not laughing in the moment. I was <laughs> just like trying to hold that in my head and be like, okay, this would be great in about an hour to tell somebody about. But right now, I want to scream. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have I, screamed. Yeah. <laughs> I want to... I want to ask you one last question, and and we were talking about this uh, when we were together the other month, and... Not quite sure how to ask it, but I'm going to do my best. We were talking about finding this more spiritual side of things. And as somebody who is incredibly analytical and really likes to approach things from a logical standpoint, which I think you are also, part of my interest in coming back to this space has been to fulfill something that feels missing in my life from that aspect of things, from the sort of spiritual or sacred component. And... I know that you've been on a similar journey, and as you've begun to connect into farming, I wonder, I wonder what that's given you. Oh, yeah. I mean, a spiritual journey in my life has been rather wild in the sense that it ha- I don't know if it's looked too much different than my professional career, just all over the place and unintelligible. But, it, yeah, I mean, I was like intense atheist when I was like seven. Mm-hmm. Me too. And my, my grandpa bought me this book, this like children's, children's Bible read through it in a weekend. It's like, this is bullshit. What are you trying to tell me that this thing happened and the whale and the lions? Like, get it. No, this is all garbage. 
Thank you for giving me these stories, but I see through all of your charade here, jigs up, and that has only led, that phase in my life was, I don't know, filled with more nihilism and depression that I would like. I was like, okay, this is just dumb. And then started having experiences where I could not explain. I think went more, it's like agnostic than atheist at that point, and then has have transitioned, really studied a lot of different religions, and now I've like gone full circle and I, I realize the utility of religion at this point. And if I were to have said this even five years ago, seven years ago, I would have laughed in my face. But I, I understand now, like, again, the digging from, okay, nutrition, physical health to emotional health, mental health, spiritual health, all these things are connected. And you can't really have one without the other, as far as what I've seen. And I think it's just a component, just like you can't really thrive without like protein and real food. If you, like, you restrict that from people, they're going to collapse. And the same thing goes for any sort of spiritual scaffolding. I think that people generally at some point end up collapsing. And I I don't have any sort of organized religion that I belong to. I wish it were that easy. I don't know if you read the article or sent it to you that Paul Kingsnorth wrote called The Cross and the Machine. Yes. It's his transition to, you know, he was, I read it and I'm like, I'm hopeful of the sense of like, oh, I'm just here on his journey and I'll be there later because the whole thing is basically his 20 plus year journey of a very similar path of throwing it all away, trying to search, be like, okay, something's missing here. What is it? And then had a bunch of different situations that led him to being Orthodox Christian. And it's like, okay, this is like, this is it. And this is everything now. I'm like, I wish I could have something like that. I wish I could snap my fingers and belong to something bigger than me from a sense of communion. I think that there's a lot missing to that. Cause I think and I can explain my sort of spiritual connection with farming, which is vast, but in general, humans are social creatures. And the issue with everybody now, and the, the same people I told you who want to go live in a commune and, but not have any responsibility to land, they all also want to start their own religions, especially in Austin, which <laughs> is a very common thing. And mm-hmm. Shaman bros. Yeah, shaman bros, exactly. And they can, they, you know, they've thought through it and they've really figured it out. And I've gone through a phase of this myself. But the end of the day, the issue with not having, and for all the issues of organized religion, I think that in general, having some sort of commonality that people can say the same words to mean the same things, tell the same stories, have the same myths is extremely powerful from a sense of belonging in the world, but also in a sense of accountability. And so when I have these spiritual experiences doing plant medicine stuff or even into farming. And I think that to explain what that is for me generally is seeing death and decay and birth happen on a daily basis and being surrounded and immersed in that for me is a very spiritual thing where it's like the same thing, same thing I talk about when you see a dying, something you love a person, they get, Oh, okay. Like nothing else really matters. When I am in inside doing my computer chores and then I go outside stressed out because of whatever email I got or some tweets and dipshit sent to me (laughs) and then i see all this stuff happening and like this branch decaying and new life and this thing happening there and this like this constant web i think you've you've said this of like one to many as far as death to life and then how that constantly goes i just think oh yeah my problems are stupid and this is like ridiculous that i even have this awareness about this stuff but i'm off the farm i lose sight of that and i think that to have ritual and to have belonging in a human community with this shared reality. I mean, we talk about 
how hard it is and how we want that veil of reality to go away from like modern society. But it's strong because everybody believes in it. It's there all the time, whether you want it to or not, because other people than you believe in the same thing. And this is, I think the missing part of religion takes that away from people. And I have to basically every day have my own practice. And like, I'm a human like anyone else. I get off track often with many things, but I wish I had some sort of congregation to belong to where people, like I was on board, believe the thing intensely and had everybody sort of like going in the same direction and created a reality for myself to exist in where I didn't have to remind myself every single day and be the sole participant in my spiritual journey. That makes any sense. So that makes all the sense in the world. You know, I'm hopeful that I'll find, I'll find something. I, I get, I, I wish it was easy. Like I'm a Christian now or I'm whatever. I think it'd be great, but I'm not, you know, I can't just believe in something I don't actually believe in. So it's, it's, it's challenging in that respect, but farming for sure. And being part of this cycle of life and death and being in more of the living cosmos than I am in a city certainly gives me a greater sense of place of me as a living being than not that. And so I think it's, again, like it's a progression of anything else. I think too, we're on, we're in a very similar space within our journey that there's, there is no, there is no overarching system of belief. There is just this sort of spiritual connectivity that I experience in those same, same spaces of, of looking at how nature turns death into new life and death again. and, And this sort of cyclical way of existing that feels outside of time, but you said something again, and I think that this has sort of come up repeatedly throughout this podcast that, that need community to do this in that, that it's so individuated and this aspect of farming is so individuated. And I know that Josh and I were relating to one another the other day that there's something beautiful about the community that a church provides in that it is a lot of people that are brought together by, you know, this core belief that are fundamentally different people. And we've worked really hard to build community in farming because we want that sense of community in this act for us that that is sort of opening up doors to how we're connected to every other living thing. And I just, it's hard and it's lonely. Yeah. But again, I think it's the same thing around all those stuff where I have hope in the future and Maybe I won't find that in my life, but I think we're progressing back towards that. And there's always this pendulum swing back and forth. But I think just got to keep searching and trying to push forward. And like I said before, with the headlights, just keep keep driving and see where the headlights shine and just keep trusting that you'll figure out your way. Yeah. So last question, I ask everybody on the podcast what it means to them to lay the groundwork. can be on a personal level, can be many generations ahead of you, whatever that is. This is something I think about a lot lately, actually, of being sort of in between a lot of work projects of what meaning do I want to infuse in work? Because this is kind of like how I've thought about in the past, at least, is what's the purpose of being here? What do I want to do with my time? And then stuff sort of like falls on top of that foundation. And I think for me, we talked about earlier the way my sort of concept on where things are going and where we're at is planting seeds for future generations And maybe these will be used literally while I'm alive and maybe it will take thousands of years, but just like you have have these dormant seed banks in a farm ecosystem. And when the conditions are right, seed pops open and up grows a plant. And the same thing with like how we think about our belonging and moving forward. 
whether it comes to farming, nutrition, health, any of these things, community, spirituality, I'm trying to do things where it's not extreme of going backwards. It's not this techno utopia weird shit, but it's something in between that I get the sense of like an internal truth. doesn't mean it's right for everybody, but it's what I can believe in for myself that I hope is the case if I have kids and they have kids, et cetera, that a certain world exists for them. So I think that, yeah, just trying to plant seeds for future generations to have some hope. I love that. I want to, I want to thank you. I really, you are such a force of wanting to find solutions and wanting to help within this community. And I just see the amount of positive resources that you bring to people that are on this journey and this exploration. And I'm just really, I'm really grateful to you for that. And so I wanted to thank you here. Oh, God, thank you. So tell people where they can find you. Um, on my farm, hopefully, <laughs> maybe not in, in the greater Austin area. Uh, but other than that, if it's online, you mentioned my podcast earlier, Natural Estate, which we're going to have you on soon. And then, yeah, other than that, if you, wherever you just type in my name, there's not too many of me. Yeah. Um, we'll have links. And people, people will be able to, you know, whatever channel you like. We'll have links. And I'll link back to some episodes where you talk more about zero acre farms and some other podcasts you've been on, because I think that your work there is fantastic. I just wanted to capture a little bit of a different space that you were in. So thank you for playing along with me. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.